Morning, church family. Morning, church family. Welcome to the Lord's Day. This is the day that we celebrate Christ's resurrection every week. Every week. That, that event, Christ, the resurrected Christ, that event changed everything for all of us and for every single believer to ever be called into the family of God. And so today we're going to get right into the, into the, into the sermon. We'll be at 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Today, so if you can turn to your Bibles to First Corinthians chapter eight, we'll also have you turn to your devices if you if you use your devices. A little bit of context: this is the next uh, issue that Paul is addressing in the Ask Pastor Paul letter, right? Meaning, Ask Pastor Paul, meaning the Corinthians were sent a letter by the by the uh, uh, to Paul to clarify some things and. Uh, and this is what it's going to t- touch upon relationships. How Christians are to love one another. Right? And so relationships are absolutely critical to be in strong discipleship communities. If there is no dis- relationships, there isn't much discipleship taking place. So relationships are critical. And so Paul is going to address how we use knowledge, the truth of the word of God, divine knowledge to love one another. Okay, so if you're able to rise with me, I'm going to read uh, 1 Corinthians 8, the whole chapter is 13 verses, not a long chapter, but we're primarily going to focus in on um, the first three verses. This is God's word. I'll be reading out the NASB version. Now concerning things sacrificed to idols, we know that we are all have knowledge. Knowledge makes arrogant or puffs up, but love edifies. If anyone supposes that he knows anything, he has not yet known as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by him. Therefore, concerning the the, concerning the eating of things sacrificed to idols, we know that there is no such thing as an idol in the world and, and that there is no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, lowercase, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, lowercase, yet for us there is but one God, the Father from whom all things and we exist for him, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, by whom all are all things and we exist through him. However, not all men have this knowledge. But some, being accustomed to the idols until now, eat food as if it were sacrificed to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. But food will not commend us to God. We are neither the worse if we do not eat, nor the better if we do eat. But take care that this liberty of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if someone sees you who have knowledge dining in the idol's temple, will not his conscience, if he is weak, be strengthened to eat things sacrificed to idols? Verse 11, for through your knowledge, he who is weak is ruined. The brother for whose sake Christ died. And so by sinning against the brethren, wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food causes my brother to stumble, I will never eat meat again so that I will not cause my brother to stumble. Let's pray briefly. Father, thank you for your word. I pray your spirit will allow us to understand your word. Help us to know your word more so that we will love your son more. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Please have a seat. 
The name of the title of the, of the sermon is called Divine Knowledge this week. Divine knowledge, right, children? Knowledge, right? Knowledge that comes from the Bible. Knowledge is critical. Hosea 4, 6 says this. God says, my people perish for lack of knowledge. Knowledge is important. And unfortunately, throughout the nation, biblical literacy and across the churches is low, at an all-time low. People are being misled. People are confused. People are not as deep into the word as we were once in the time of our nation. So therefore, we need to gird up our knowledge of the word. The Bible is the foundation for what we believe. The Bible is the gift from God to know what he has to say. Just like my brother talked about where the media and all kinds of things, all kinds of conversations with different folks, we could be filled up with a lot of lies. The Bible is what gives us our foundation for what we believe. The Bible is where we're able to test what we hear. Amen? Otherwise, there's no telling what is truth and what's from error. What is the Bible? What is the Bible? All right, this is, a, this is the, I love having a paper Bible, okay? Sometimes I use my computer, but I like reading from the paper Bible. The Bible is, is God's word. We know this. But what is the, how is the Bible put together? What, 66 different books? It's a compilation of God's word. And God used 40 different authors to author the entire Bible. And God used 1,600 years, 1,600 years for all 40 authors to bring, the, to author the Bible. And the Bible was authored in three original languages, Hebrew, Greek, and Aramaic. The Old Testament is primarily Hebrew. The New Testament is primarily Greek. And these 40 different authors, they wrote on three different continents. Asia, Africa, and Europe. This is the Bible. And it's a miraculous work of art. And God uses the Bible to instruct us today to, to, know, to become a Christian and to know how to live as a Christian. So therefore, the Bible is absolutely essential to live as a, as a disciple now, today's intro is going to be a little bit more longer here. I just, want, just wanted to prepare you to understand uh, why we're going through this. We're, we're just primarily going to cover three verses today. All right, three verses. But the Bible is crucial. And as you could probably tell, the Bible is central to Evergreen SGV, whether you've been here for a while or just joined us. The Bible is absolutely central. Why is that? Because the Bible is the only inspired, inerrant, authoritative word of God. This is the source where we know what God is saying. Now, pastor, what does it mean that the Bible is inspired? Well, that's in 2 Timothy 3, 16 says the, the word of God is inspired or God breathed. That means God wrote every single word in the Bible. This is from God himself. God may have used 40 different human authors, but God is the author. Make no mistake about that. These 40 different authors are just merely pens for God to write on pieces of paper. But God is the author. What, Pastor, what does it mean when you say this is the inerrant word of God? Psalms 119, 160, 119, Psalm 119, 160 says, Your word is without error. 
In the original autograph, the Bible is without er error. God meant to say what he wrote, whether it's 2,000 years ago or 3,000 years ago. The Bible is trustworthy. If we rightfully understand the word of God, we could bank on it and what it's saying. And what does it mean, pastor, when you say it's authoritative? That means this, that Christ mediates his rule through the scriptures, meaning we say Jesus is Lord, amen? This is how Jesus rules our life, by what he speaks to us through his word. And in essence, a disciple is to submit every area of our lives to the authority of the scriptures. That's what it means to be a disciple, a follower of Christ. That means we submit every area, not just part of our our lives, or every area of our lives to the authority of the scriptures. And we believe in this. And how does it manifest here at Evergreen? Well, we, we, have, we believe in expository preaching. That means that we teach what the Bible says. We explain what the scriptures say. That means that we are committed to equipping and Christian education. We want to teach our adults and our children about the word of God. We believe in things such as biblical counseling, how we minister the word of God. Pastor Dan is heading up that effort to teach our church family how we minister the word to help each other. We believe in singing true songs, biblical music. We believe in singing right things. This is how it manifests in the life of the church. And I know we love the word. And this is why you've remained, and this is why we've attracted new people. I, and we've had new guests, and people say, hey, pastor, I want to be part of this church. I say, why? Because we want to go to a place where we have the Bible as our foundation. We love this. And so it's good to have hunger for divine knowledge. This is critical. However, I say all that. To say this one statement. However, the Bible, the Bible gives us some warnings about gathering divine knowledge. Today is a warning and teaching us on how to approach the scriptures and why, more important, why we want to learn more about the Bible. This is what our aim is going to be today. Why do we want to learn more about truth, about the, about through God's word? Now, let's just go to the scriptures here. With all that said, that was the intro here, okay? Let's go to verse 1 here. The Bible says, now concerning. So Paul is clearly now uh, shifting gears and now concerning. Next issue on the Ask Pastor Paul letter. Now concerning what? Concerning things sacrificed to idols. That was a, a practical thing that the Corinthians wrote about. Hey, this is a big deal to us. Are we able to eat things sacrificed to idols? I mean, for us... That may be like a, a foreign thing, like what's the big deal? But for us, some of us may. For some of us who's connected to the old country more than others, it's a big deal. In Japan, they, they offer little oranges and fruits to ancestors. Maybe you come out of a culture where you worship idols, right? I mean, so this might be actually closer to home than we might think. But for the Corinthian culture, they, they worship many gods. The Greco-Roman world, they believe in this God for this area of life, this God for this area of life, this God for this area of life. They, they, there's multiple gods that they, that they believed in. And one of the forms of worship was this. They would sacrifice animals. They would sacrifice animals to gain the favor of their gods. Obviously, false gods, idols. And... They would burn a portion of the animal, but there was leftover meat. 
What do you do with all that? Well, one, you'd have these pagan feasts, have big parties, that's one. But also, these false priests, what they would do is they'd gather the meat, and they'll take it to the temple butcher shop. And since it was donated, it was 100% profit, so you could buy this meat at a cheaper price. You didn't have to go to the marketplace to pay the premium price. You could go to the temple market and... Christian wives would go to the temple market wanting to steward their funds and get a good deal and buy this. But this became a divisive issue in the church in Corinth. Why? There was a lot of tension around this. Why? Because, one, Jewish believers, they didn't want to have anything to do with pagan things. In Acts 15, the Jerusalem council, James gave out some orders on how to govern or how, for, how Gentile Christians should live. And one of them is to abstain from meat sacrificed to idols. There it is. This is a highly offensive thing for so many of the Jewish Christians. But also for the Gentiles. Think about it. If you came out of this system were so oppressive where you had to give things and you, you're constantly terrified. Is this God going to love me or curse me? It, it was a very oppressive thing. So for even Gentile Christians, they were thinking, whoa, I don't want to have anything to do with the old life. And it would bring up old memories, bring up bad memories. So this was a very sensitive topic. And so Paul is addressing this thing. And we'll go into verse 1 here again. We know that we all have knowledge, Paul writes, I believe Paul is quoting from the letter where the Corinthians say, we all know this, don't we, Paul? What's the big deal? So verse 4 tells us what the Corinthians assumed that everybody knew. Verse 4 says, therefore concerning the eating of things sacrificed to idols, we know that there is no such thing as an idol in the world and that there are no God but one. There's no idols. Idols aren't real. Therefore there's no power. Go ahead and eat these things. And there's only one God. Doesn't everybody know this? Well, some Christians who are deeper into the faith, who knew more, understood this. And they were just blatant. They are just basically saying, Paul, everybody knows this. What's the big deal? Could you just set things in order? Can we just eat our meat and not worry about it? Could you set these weaker Christians in, pl- in their place so we could eat meat? Can't, can't they become mature like us? So Paul is addressing this thing and kind of restates what they wrote. So next week, we're going to get more deeper into the sacrificing idols and the implications for us today. But this week, I really felt led. The first three verses are so loaded. I said, I can't just gloss over these three verses. So today, we're going to answer one foundational question. One foundational question. That's it. And that question is this. What is, what is divine knowledge? We're going to understand what it is and why we want to uh, pursue divine knowledge. So what is divine knowledge? Let's go to point number one. Divine knowledge is less about what we know. Fill in the blank. What we know. Divine knowledge is less about what we know. Remember the Corinthian culture. Just a quick review. Sophia is the Greek word for wisdom. Wisdom was very big. Knowledge was a big deal. Accumulation knowledge was a big deal for the Corinthians. Remember, this was a source of status. And remember this, the level of status you're able to achieve, that's how you're treated. If you had high status, you're treated well. If you had low status, you weren't treated well. And also, if you had high status compared to a low status Corinthian, you would treat them accordingly as well. So this dictated a lot of Corinthian life. So Paul is really addressing really fundamental issues in the heart of the Corinthians. Knowledge is power. 
And basically, the more divine knowledge you had in the church, that meant you had more power, which led to more pride, which created a hierarchy within the church. Division. Division. Right? So relationships were being damaged here. Relationships. Relationships were severed. How could discipleship take place? Paul's wondering. Let's get to the issue here. Verse 1 says, Knowledge makes arrogant. Or knowledge puffs up, as it says in ESV. I kind of like that. Knowledge puffs up. And this is a warning to the Corinthians and to us 2,000 years later that knowledge puffs up. And I believe Paul was speaking from experience. Remember, he was a Pharisee at one time. Pharisees acquired knowledge, biblical knowledge, Old Testament knowledge to gain power. This is what gave them authority and power. Paul understood this. The more I know, the more power I can have. The more I know, the more prideful I can be as it relates to other people. And also, Paul had this unique revelation. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians, just to the right, guys. 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Paul is able to go to heaven even. Paul saw heaven. And this was a temptation for him to be proud. Let me read 1 Corinthians 12. 2, excuse me, 2 Corinthians chapter 12. 2 Corinthians Boasting is necessary, though it is not profitable. But I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ. He's talking about himself. For 14 years ago, whether in the body, I do not know, or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. Such a man was caught up to the third heavens. What is the third heavens? We'll find out here in a second. And I know how, how such a man, whether in the body or apart from the body, I do not know. God knows, meaning Paul was either taken up on a vision or he actually was brought to heaven, was caught up into paradise. The third heavens is heaven, the heavenly realm where God resides. Paul was able to minimally take a look into heaven. Can you imagine that? was caught up into paradise and heard inexpressible words, angelic things, things that no one is able to speak. It says words which, is, which a man is not permitted to speak on. I mean, think about this. Paul, the apostle, went up to heaven. I don't know if any other apostle is able to have this experience. Imagine if they go to the Jerusalem council and Paul shows up and all the big wigs of, uh, of the Christian movement are there. They may be deciding some things, and Paul could have easily stepped and said, well, you know, that's pretty good, Peter. But have you ever been up to heaven? Well, let's, let's, let's go with my idea, right? I mean, I could, I, that could be a source of pride. How could it not be? In our lifetime, experience kind of gives people credibility. Paul went to heaven. Paul went to heaven in the real sense where he's able to come back and maybe talk about it a little bit. Let's jump to verse 7 here on 2 Corinthians 12. But it was a blessing, but it also was a source of a temptation because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations. For this reason, to keep me from exalting myself, there was given me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan, a demon from Satan, to torment, to keep me from exalting myself. Paul, even the great apostle Paul, needed help to be humble. Any of us would struggle with this type of knowledge. 
So the point is, Paul is speaking from experience that knowledge puffs up. The more divine knowledge we're able to accumulate, that is a temptation to be prideful towards other Christians. Knowledge puffs up. I mean, this day and age, we're known as the information age, right? With the internet, believe it or not, younger people, at one time we had to go to the library to figure things out now and do our research projects and write our term papers. We have to go to the library and look up old newspaper articles, our microfiche and things like that. But now you just search it, right? I mean, it's there. It's amazing. I mean, if you want to learn more about Christ, we, you have the best preachers online. You have incredible articles written by the most talented people on the planet. You could find online conferences and hear from these world-known leaders. You could download free commentaries. You could look up any version or translation of the Bible. There's really no excuse in terms of being able to learn more. This is the easiest time in the history of the planet uh, up to now that we're able to learn these things. So it's easy. But the reason why we seek out this information is just as critical as seeking out the information itself. There's some incomplete reasons for studying the Bible. Let me give you one or two. One is to merely gain biblical data. I have this book written by J.I. Packer. J.I. Packer, if you guys don't know, is one of the giants of our, uh, uh, giant theologians of our day. He passed away recently, and he wrote this book, which sold millions of copies, called Knowing God. Knowing God. And I have this quote out of this book, J.I. Packer writes, to be preoccupied with getting theological knowledge as an end in itself to approach Bible study with no higher a motive than a desire to know all the answers is the direct route to a state of self-satisfied self-deception. What he's saying, just to learn knowledge, just to have the right answers, is a way to be deceived. You can have the right answers, but have the wrong heart. We need to guard our hearts against such an attitude and pray to be kept from it. As we saw earlier, there can be no spiritual health without doctrinal knowledge, meaning in order to grow as a disciple, you need truth. He's saying that. He's acknowledging that, of course. But it is equally true that there can be no spiritual health with it, meaning just because you have head knowledge doesn't mean your heart is being transformed. That's what uh, J.I. Packard's saying. If it is sought for the wrong purpose and valued by the wrong standards, in this way, doctrinal study really can become a danger to spiritual life. And we today, no less than the Corinthians of old, need to be on guard here. Meaning, why do we want to study the scriptures? Why do we want to sit under good preaching? Why do we want to have a good commentary? Why? It has to be more than head knowledge. It has to be more than just gaining data. I I know more, I know more, I know more. That's not it. Another pitfall of studying the scriptures could be merely to gain wisdom, how to live. What's wrong with that, pastor? Isn't it good for me to live wisely? Absolutely. But that's not the ends in itself. That's just a way to glorify our Lord. I mean, think about it. If you study the scriptures, I want to be a good parent. I want to raise my kids well. How great is that? You turn to the scriptures. But that could be a source of pride. When you look at another family, it goes, hey, honey, I guess they don't get it, huh? Right? I mean, I don't know if you ever said that. Maybe that thought has crossed your mind as you look at a, a different way of parenting. They may, you may be completely right, but it could be a source of pride, right? Knowledge puffs up where we could be sitting in judgment of others, you know? 
So the analogy I like to make is divine knowledge is like a sharp knife. A sharp knife. I mean, a sharp knife is able to do incredible damage and harm. Amen? We know this. A sharp knife is very dangerous. And knowledge without love leads to arrogance, which leads to doing damage towards one another. A, a, a divine knowledge without love needs to, uh, leads to a like kind of know-it-all attitude. Or I need to be right all the time attitude. Basically, we get the Bible and we, we bash people over the head with it, right? It's like, instead of helping people, we're just trying to lord it over them. That's what, that's one, that is the warning that Paul is talking about. So we say, Pastor Rocky, well, then why do we make a big emphasis on the Bible? Are we, are we kind of setting ourselves up for a deep fall? Of course not. We need to know the word. This is not, we're not backing off emphasis on God's word. One, one inch, not one inch. Actually, we keep, we're going to keep moving towards the centrality and this, the primacy of the word. We're going to keep moving in that direction. But we need to be more like surgeons who have a very sharp knife in our hands, but we're well trained and we have the right heart. This is to help heal people, not to do damage. We need to be more like spiritual surgeons. We're trying to help others. I mean, there's more to it than being right. Amen? The heart needs to be right. This is what we're talking about today. So Paul is giving us a warning, not just to pursue knowledge just for knowledge sake or how to live. All right, so let's get to the next point. What is divine knowledge? First thing we talked about, it's less about what we know. What is divine knowledge? Divine knowledge is more about who we know. It's about a person. Let me, let me read verse eight, uh, chapter 8, verse 1. But love edifies, it says at the end. But love edifies, Paul writes. You know, edifies means to build up, to construct, to make better. We help each other get better. And love is the issue. And, and what type of love is this? This is agape love. Many of us know what agape loves, but for those of us who don't know, agape love means this, that this is the highest level of love. This is the highest form of love. This is the sacrificial love of the world where we're like living like Christ. This is God-like love. This is divine love. This type of love edifies. So the question you may be asking me is, Pastor Walt, how do I grow in love? This is the question here, since, since, since this is the key element here. Knowledge with love edifies. John Calvin notes, okay, this is the great reformer, John Calvin. The foundation of true knowledge is a personal knowledge of God. We're learning more about God. And as William read earlier at our John chapter 5, verse 39, thank you, brother, for reading that, he based, in essence read that Jesus is the primary topic of the Bible. Jesus, with his own words, says this. Let me read it for us again. John 5, 39. You search the scriptures, as he's confronting the Pharisees, who knew something about uh, pride. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is these, talking about the scriptures, this is with our, our Lord's words, it is these that testify about me. The Bible is talking about me. So the Bible is about Jesus. The Bible is all about Jesus. So when you read the scriptures, have that in mind. 
Just like we tell our kids when you're reading, uh, writing a story or reading a story, have the main idea in mind so you kind of keep building upon that main idea. Jesus is that main idea. For example, the Old Testament from Genesis to Malachi, Genesis to Malachi, it's the anticipation of Christ. The Messiah, the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John is about the life of Christ, the perfect life of Christ. Acts, the book of Acts is about the preaching of Christ, how the church was born through the preaching of Christ. The epistles, these are the letters that Paul, John, and Peter and others wrote. This is talking about the explanation of Christ. We get to learn more about Christ. And in Revelation is the coming of Christ, the return of Christ. In a nutshell, the whole Bible's about Jesus. This is the thing that we need to remember when we seek out divine knowledge. We're trying to learn more about a person, not what, but who. We're learning more about Christ. 1 John 4, 9 says this, we love because he first loved us. The more we learn more about Christ, the more we'll love him. The more we love him, the more we become like him. That's how it works. That's called sanctification. And the more we become like him, the more we'll love one another. That's how this works. That's the progression. It starts with Christ. First Timothy 1.5, this is a constant reminder for me as I preach the word and have the opportunity to teach the word. For the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart, meaning the reason why we preach, the reason why we teach, the reason why we minister the word is that people will grow to love Christ more and we'll be able to love one another more. This is why we do what we do. John MacArthur writes this in, in, in his description of a well-rounded Christian. John MacArthur writes, the truly well-rounded Christian thinks and acts in two ways. Conceptually, and relationally, he has the ability to understand biblical truths and the ability to relate them to people, to himself, and to others. He has the knowledge plus love. There it is again. Because love is the medium through which truth is to be communicated. He quotes Ephesians 4.15. Speaking the truth in love. There it is. Paul's words. We are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head. Even Christ. So we're trying to help each other become more like Christ. Knowledge by itself brings arrogance, not maturity. So knowledge with love builds relationships. Michael Barrow. I love this man, Michael Barrow. Michael Barrow was a great football player. In his day at University of Miami Hurricanes and played like a decade in the NFL. But he and I got to coach together in Seattle Seahawks. He coached the linebackers. Michael Barrow and I, he's a, had a kinship immediately. He loves Christ, this man. And we're in this arena together, so we, you bet we locked arms. And one of the things that he would say is this, in the brotherhood that he and I shared, is this. Players don't care how much you know. Finish it off until they know how much you what? Care. Players don't care how much you know, how much knowledge I have of football until they know how much you actually care. See, love is what allows the other person to receive from you and me so they can receive it with less guardedness without feeling like they're going to get manipulated and used. They can like, all right, he or she's trying to help me because he loves me. And it's about building relationships. Yes, we need the knowledge as a coach or as Christians now. We need knowledge and we need truth, no question. We're about truth. 
However, in order to help another person out, we need to build relationships with one another. We need to demonstrate that we actually love one another. That's why the best coaches aren't the ones that know the most. It's the ones that are able to relate to the the locker room, relate to other coaches, be able to work with one another, those who are able to gain trust so that you could dispense the truth. (laughs) Right? This is, is a fundamental thing that Christians need to understand, that we need to master relationships, of course, in our homes, in our marriages, with our children, our grandchildren, but also people that we work with, people that we, we, we uh, uh, associate with constantly. If we don't have relationships, it's hard to dispense truth. I, I promise you that much. That's why I'll throw out a challenge. How helpful it is, is it to just throw out some kind of statement on social media? There's no relationship there. How helpful is that? I don't think that's very helpful. Relationships. And in some ways, I know my style of preaching is different from what we've been accustomed to. And if I don't have a, like a relationship with you, you may look at me like, hey, that, that guy's pretty intense. Like, is there any love in that guy? <laughs> that might have crossed your minds. But what's interesting is we've been able to be out here together. I've been growing a relationship with everyone here. We know each other. We get each other. So, okay, that's just how you are. You're intense about the truth. But I trust you, right? I mean, that's what relationship is about. And so relationships, brothers and sisters, we need to major in relationships. And then we could dispense the truth to one another because then we trust each other. Let's go to the third and final point here. What is divine knowledge? Well, let me review the first two. It's less about what we know. Certainly it's important, but it's less about what we know. Second point is it's more about who we know. That's Jesus. And thirdly, what is divine knowledge? Divine knowledge is mostly, now there's a little play on words, mostly about who knows us. Fill in the blank. It's still who, but rather than us knowing this person now, it's about who knows us top down. Right? Verse 2. Let me read verse 2 for us. If anyone supposes that he knows anything, he has yet, he has not yet known as he ought to know. What is that saying? Basically, you think you got it all figured out? <laughs> Paul's saying, you don't got to figure it out. You think you know, but you don't know. Right? That's what Paul's basically saying. You think you got, you got a lot of knowledge, but you don't know God like you should know him. I've been to heaven. (laughs) Trust me, you don't know. All right, Paul's able to say that authoritatively, right? And I just want to read a very famous Bible verse out of Isaiah 55. You guys know this. God says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. We cannot comprehend what God knows. He is big. We are small. Divine knowledge is about knowing God, the greatness of God, right? How could we totally understand God? That's what makes him God, partly. Illustration from the Old Testament, Job. Job came to my mind as we're studying, as I was preparing for the sermon, and uh, Job is the oldest book written in the Bible. This is the oldest book. Interesting how God would choose Job to be written. Job is the, the book right before Psalm, the book of Psalms. All right, 
the book of Psalms. And, it's, and this is the oldest book written. Job was a man who lost a lot. He went through some immense trials that all of us would shudder about thinking if these things happened to us. I mean, he, he lost his fortune. He lost his family. He lost his friends. He began to lose his health. He lost his respect from his friends and wife. I mean, friends started accusing him. Surely, Job, all these trials are happening because you deserve it. God's punishing you. That's why this is happening. Job was an innocent man. He was like, what do you mean? Even his wife says this, curse God and die, right? I mean, gosh, that's tough, right? It's not what you want to say to your husbands, you know, if he's going through a hard time. That, that is a tough statement. So Job, he's human, so he starts to break down and starts questioning God. Like, why God? Why God? And he even starts to question God's character. And let me read Job 38 here, a couple verses here to set the stage here. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, so after all of this, Job was just throwing questions towards God, even judging God. God graciously shows up. Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Who is this that misleads and it's talking about things that he doesn't know about? This is what God says. Now gird up your loins like a man. And I will instruct you, and you uh, I will ask you, and you will instruct me. Meaning, all right, Job, you don't question me. You don't sit in judgment of me. I'm going to give you the questions, and you're going to answer to me. And Troy, our, 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 our son, kind of helped me out with this. And he goes, didn't God take Job through a tour of the university? That's right, he did. I mean, God starts questioning Job and says, where were you when the foundations of the earth was laid? Where were you when the light and darkness were, were housed? Where were you when I told the day to be day and the night to be night? Where were you when the oceans were being laid? And he showed him the great Leviathan, the great sea creatures of the ocean. Where were you when the beasts of the field act the way they do? Or were you the one that instructed them? Were, are you the one that gives people knowledge and insight? And so basically, God graciously was deconstructing Job's idea of his knowledge. Like, oh, you're right. I don't know what I'm talking about. If you're able to, let's go to Job 42. So God spends like about three or four chapters talking to him about where were you? Ten, four chapters saying you don't know. I'm just going to read the first six verses out of verse, chapter 42 of Job. This is what happened. Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Even in the elections, okay? Guys, God is in control. God is in control. And then this is God's word. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Same thing. Pretty much the same thing. God says, who is this that misleads without knowledge? You don't know what you're talking about. Who is this? Therefore, I have declared that which I did not understand. So Job admits it. You're right, God. I was talking about things I did not understand. I'm so sorry. Things too wonderful for me, wonderful for me, which I did not know. Job is understanding now. I don't understand. You understand, God. Here's God's word again, verse 4. Hear now, and I will speak. 
I will ask you and you, I will ask you and you instruct me. I'm going to question you now, Job. Job's response, I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. Now I get you more now, God. I knew about you hearing, but now I see I get you more, God. And look at his response out of verse six. Therefore, I retract. I take back everything I said. I'm so sorry, God. And I repent in dust and ashes. Job got it. Job would say, I'm so sorry, Lord, for even questioning you. You know everything. You have the big perspective. I know nothing. I'm limited to my own little perspective. It's interesting. The more I've been able to study the Bible the last three years, the more humbled I've become. (laughs) I'm starting to realize more and more how little I know of God. This is the posture that we should approach the word. That God is so big and we're so tiny and he graciously allows us to see him. But we know only in part right now, brothers and sisters. We have to be humble. Humility is a mark of maturity. And part of that humility is realizing we don't know everything. Let's finish up with verse 3 here, uh, 1 Corinthians, back to 1 Corinthians chapter 8 here. Verse 3. But if anyone loves God, comma, he is known by him. To be known by God means this, that God has an intimate knowledge of us. God has a deep relational knowledge of us. Similar, this knowing is similar to how a husband knows his wife very closely, very intimately. Everything, the good, the bad, the ugly, God knows us in this way. And what the Lord is showing us also is this, this verb tense in original language how verse 3 says, he is known by him. He is known by God. This verb tense talks about how this knowing happened in eternity past. Before we even loved God, God loved us. And this is critical that we understand this and embrace this. Before we even existed, before the foundations of the world were laid, God says, I'm going to choose to love you. I'm going to choose to love you. How can we be arrogant knowing this? How can we be arrogant knowing this? Remember, today is Communion Sunday. We do this once a month, as my brother talked about. First Sunday of the month, we take communion. I want you to think about this now as you, as you prepare your hearts for communion. I want you to think about this thought. When our Lord Jesus Christ was hanging on the cross... Was he thinking about you and me? Or was this kind of, a, kind of a generic dying on the cross? Can you imagine that? Imagine if someone saves your life today, knowing, to, knowing who he's going to save. How would you feel about that person? Jesus Christ, the one who questioned Job and gave Job the virtual tour of the entire universe, is the one who willingly went to the cross 
he's the one that's known you and me from eternity past. So the answer to that question is yes. Jesus had you and me in mind as he's being nailed to the cross where every, every lash that he took on his back as the thorn of crowns was being jammed into a skull and every drop of blood bleeding from his head, he was thinking about you and me. As he willingly lay down, his arms were stretched out and nails were being pounded into his hands, into his feet. He was thinking about you and me. Let me read 1 Corinthians 11, verse 23, talking about communion. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, Paul writes, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. He was thinking about you and me as he's teaching about the ordinance of communion. Verse 25, in the same way, he took the cup. Also after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. There's a lot of knowledge there. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So as we take this cup and the, and, and the bread today, Let's think about this, how personal of a rescue mission this was to save you and me. Let's do this in remembrance of our Lord. So as we prepare to take communion, we're going to have another song here. I'd like you to have your elements ready in person and online. But more importantly, let's prepare our hearts so that we take communion in a worthy manner. You can sing along, that's perfectly fine. But use this time to prepare our hearts to take communion in a worthy manner. Think about the fact that this was a very personal rescue plan by our Lord. And for communion, this we welcome all Christians to join us in communion, whether online or in person. If you're part of another local church, that's great. But are you a genuine Christian? You need to be a genuine follower of Jesus Christ. Secondly, for, for us, let's make sure we take communion in a worthy manner by making sure we've repented of any sins that we've been, that we know of. We don't want to come to the Lord's table harboring sin. You don't want to come to the Lord's table in an unworthy manner. God knows. So if there's any sin that you need to repent of, let's repent. Let's do business with the Lord right now. And if there's any disunity amongst the body that you know of, Let's repent of that and, and, and commit to reconciling as best to your ability. And then now let's come to the Lord's table in a worthy manner. Amen? So I'm going to pray right now. And then there'll be music afterwards. Let's use that time to prepare our hearts, to honor the Lord, to remember the Lord. Pray with me. Father, thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. Thank you, Jesus, for knowing us. From the very beginning, you knew us. Thank you, Jesus, that you are big. You're immeasurable. You're great. And we are small. Thank you, Jesus, for who you are. And thank you, Jesus, that you died for us in the most personal way. So, Lord, please help us to take communion in a worthy manner. Help us to know and affirm that we are genuinely in the faith, that we are genuine Christians. We're genuine followers of you. 
Help us to repent of any sins that we know right now. Help us just repent and just to affirm to you once again that we trust in your work to make us clean. Father, if you brought anyone to mind that we have disunity with, help us to forgive and to commit to restoring the unity amongst the brotherhood and sisterhood. So thank you, Father. Please prepare us for taking communion in a worthy manner. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.